Hello, Chula Dasa. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the arising of PT, spontaneous body movements, and how it relates to purification of the mind. Outside of therapy, yoga, and Qigong or Tai Chi, for someone who's going through a prolonged period of these sometimes painful movements, do you have any advice not mentioned in TMI? We'll just sitting with the movement and energy eventually over time release the blocks that are causing it, or will it sometimes require other methods? What would you advise some what would you advise someone who has been going through it for about a year now and whose development of concentration has stalled because of the movements around stage six, seven? Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, so it's uh, from Kim. Um, actually, uh, for most people, uh, just meditating through the movements uh, is, is all that's necessary. But uh, I, I do very often, as uh, uh, Kim already noticed here, is, is uh, uh, recommend some kind of uh, uh, yoga, qigong, or something like that to help work with the energy. But uh, there was a question about whether this relates to purification of the mind. And if those movements are really strong and stage six, seven, there is a possibility that there is some kind of, uh, there is something that is needing purification. And um, so of course, a uh, approach to that would be to shift your attention uh, to, the, uh, to the movement and to the sensations behind the movement. As a matter of fact, this is what we usually recommend for anything that is uh, uh, constantly uh, grabbing your attention and, uh, and, and making it difficult to concentrate, which I gather is happening in this case. So I would say, see, see what you can do by uh, following the instructions for stage four, uh, essentially as described for pain and for uh, emotionally charged material that comes up. Focusing your attention on it objectively, uh, examining it, see if something else comes up, see if it leads to a purification. And uh, it very well may be that that happens. And, and that would probably resolve this problem. Um, otherwise, the uh, uh, best I would say is to uh, do some sort of energy, energy practice uh, outside of your regular meditation practice. See if that helps um, and go to somebody who is knowledgeable about these things. The only thing I'd add is, is uh, um, the PT sense, if by the PT sensations you are referring to uh, sensation of energy currents and they appear to be um, um, blocked in, in certain areas, I, I have found that um, that energy follows intention. And so, or, or attention, I should say. And so that you can sometimes uh, focus your uh, attention on the block energy and try to bring it through that block. And uh, I have found that that works for me. But I personally haven't had a lot of experience with energy movements. And so uh, uh, that's the best I can advise uh, for that. Um, 
not much more than is in the book. I know that, and, and I'm sorry. I, some of my teachers in training have a lot more experience with energy work, and uh, they are, uh, you know, I have asked them to uh, work with this and, and add this basically to the overall PMI program. And uh, so we can look forward to that happening. But, but for you, Kim, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have anything more to offer than that at the moment. By the way, if any of the, those that are here and are listening wish to comment on any of my answers, feel free to. So the next question that comes up is from uh, German Biranko. I don't know if I pronounced your name correctly, German. And could you please talk about mindfulness in daily life and how one could use it to reduce craving and procrastination, uh, particularly if you could explain what to do or intend to have such mindfulness in daily life. Uh, and then what to do when we have recognized the craving. Um, and uh, there is a response referring to a uh, 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 weekend workshop I did on the path to awakening in daily life. Um, and, and that, of course, would be a good resource. I don't know if German has, uh, has looked to that. I see. If something from German comes up a little bit later here. Um, practicing mindfulness in daily life really parallels very much developing uh, sustained attention and peripheral awareness in meditation. You have the intention, you do it for short periods of time, and then you find you've forgotten it. Uh, and then later on, you realize that you have forgotten it. And um, a lot of developing mindfulness in daily life is to just work through uh, that in exactly the same way that you uh, uh, do the first uh, the first four stages uh, described in TMI. Uh, you're going to go through periods where uh, you wake up in the morning and you have a clear intention to uh, to be mindful during the day. And uh, six o'clock in the evening, you realize that uh, you haven't been mindful all day. Um, very similar to coming out of mind wandering. But the thing is to, to treat it in, in the same way. And you will uh, develop the ability to have more mindfulness. Now, there is, there is a very powerful practice that's described in uh, one of the appendices of the uh, 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 <laughs> what, what is it called? It's the mindful review. Mindful review. Yes. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> the mindful review practice. We introduce it later on in the book, but it's something that you could start applying uh, very early on. And really, that is what you want. Uh, I, I like to say uh, that's why we call it practice. Having mindfulness on the cushion is one thing, but having mindfulness in daily life is uh, is what we're really interested in doing. Um, whenever you uh, become aware of craving uh, in any of its form, then you that that's a major step right there, just to be aware of it. 
examine it, investigate it. Um, be mindful if, if you uh, if you end up acting out of craving. Be mindful of the consequences uh, of that. And uh, I, what you will notice if you are mindful is that acting out of craving is ultimately not satisfying. It usually leads to more craving, but also very often leads to other problems and disruptions uh, in, in your relationships with others and um, in, in your own uh, uh, enjoyment of the rest of the day. So uh, um, this would be an, an example of um, how you can use mindfulness when it when you do when it does arise to examine uh, the arising of craving if you can examine the self-centered origins of it and most particularly examine the consequences of it uh, reflect on the cons on the non-immediate consequences of it in that in that each time you succumb to craving that you uh, increase your bondage to craving and each time you act out of self-centered motivations, uh, you increase uh, the strength of your clinging to self. So just simply reflecting on those things can be quite helpful. I hope this is helpful to you, German. Anusha, the next question is from Anusha. And interestingly enough, German has provided an excellent answer to this. <laughs> um, the question is, I understand that gross distraction can occur when the mind is overly energized and the strong dullness occurs when the mind is overly calm. Uh, does this mean that gross distraction and strong dullness always occur independently from one another? Uh, or can they ever exist simultaneously? And uh, I can give a short answer to this question is that is that they most definitely can occur simultaneously. Uh, strong, uh, strong dullness predisposes to uh, gross distraction. And uh, gross distraction can uh, make one more vulnerable to dullness, which uh, can uh, increase and eventually become strong dullness. So the simple answer is that uh, yes, they can, and uh, not infrequent, infrequently do exist simultaneously. Uh, the other point that's important to make is that gross distraction is not necessarily directly relinked to an overly energized mind. Uh, it's just that an overly energized mind uh, is more prone to distraction in general. And with more distraction in general, uh, this, this creates a greater opportunity for something to arise, which is, has a strong enough uh, attraction that it captures attention and becomes a gross distraction. So, uh, uh, and this is something that German uh, covered in the answer there, um, the, uh, that uh, it is, it, it's not a direct connection because you can have gross distraction when you're dull, you can have, your, have gross distraction when you're uh, agitated. Uh, now, there's something similar uh, but, but different with strong dullness. Uh, the overly energized mind 
doesn't uh, is not particularly prone to strong dullness, but if it leads into uh, prolonged gross distraction and forgetting, then uh, then that uh, original um, ener energized mind that led to that, uh, when you come back out of that, might have uh, might have slipped into into dullness, and uh, so. Uh, it's just another example of, of, of the way that they're not necessarily directly connected with each other, but they are indirectly connected, and uh, um, and, and that the opposites can occur. I hope that's clear. The important thing is to treat gross distraction directly in in the ways that are described in stage four. If your mind is uh, overly energized, then a little bit of subtle dullness can be helpful, um, but uh, not too much. Um, and uh, when there's strong dullness, uh, it can sometimes be helpful to arouse the mind. I wouldn't say to agitate the mind, but to arouse and energize the mind. But there is always a danger of, of overly energizing the mind and then having to deal more directly with uh, uh, distraction rather than dullness. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that's the way the process works. And, and sometimes when you apply an antidote to one, uh, it ends up uh, having a degree of overshoot and, um, and the other problem develops. But mainly, rather than worrying about your mind being overly energized or overly calm, um, work with strong dullness and gross distraction in the ways that uh, we have described for stage four. Um, so I hope that's helpful to you, Anusha. Now Flo has a very interesting question. I'm curious about Chuladas's opinion on the importance of the progress of insight maps. Not sure exactly how to phrase this as a good and short question, but this is what I'd like to know. To what degree should a TMI meditator care about or be familiar with the map? Would it be useful or a hindrance? How compatible and compatible with TMI are those maps? And how similar will a TMI meditator's experiences of insight be to those described in those maps? So that's a very good question. Now, first of all, these are maps of two different things. As uh, it is described, one is a map of the progress of insight. Um, it is a map specifically of the progress of insight as experienced by somebody doing a dry insight practice uh, who, has not, uh, who has not developed any kind of samatha. They will develop a certain degree of stability of attention they will definitely develop some uh, degree of uh, uh, peripheral awareness and introspective awareness. Otherwise, they would not actually experience insight. But these skills aren't developed to the same degree of refinement in the Mahasi style noting practice that the progress of insight map is usually applied to. The, you can, to a certain degree, uh, see the relationship of these maps to each other. Um, 
the in the progress of insight, the uh, arising and passing away uh, has a reasonably close correspondence to stage six, in that uh, uh, particularly in an, uh, a retreat situation uh, where somebody achieves sufficient uh, stability of attention to experience the arising and passing away, their, their level of attentional stability is comparable to what it is in stage six. And this also is, uh, this is noted as the beginning of insight in the progress of insight map. And it's also the point in the uh, 10 stages where it is most common that uh, insight begins to occur. Uh, stage six, stage seven, people often experience some degree of insight. And from those stages on, especially when they get to adept stages, then insight becomes very common. One other important um, place the two map together is that in the progress of insight map, the knowledge of equanimity towards formation is actually a state of samatha. Now, it's not as robust and repeatable a state uh, of samatha as the samatha that would have been developed systematically over time. But in the progress of insight, uh, the equanimity, knowledge of equanimity towards formation is precisely the state of samatha. So that's, that's another really important overlap. Now, there are some other ways in which they overlap. Um, prior to the knowledge of arising and passing away, there are some minor insights described in the progress of insight maps. And these, all of these will be uh, realized and experienced by uh, anyone doing the TMI practice, um, certainly from uh, stage four on. Um, usually it's at stage four that these, uh, these become apparent and they become much stronger by stage six. Um, then when somebody has a, an insight experience, now, in uh, the progress of insight map, it's based on one particular method, dry insight practice. And what follows the uh, knowledge of arising and passing away is the knowledge of dissolution, which is an insight experience of impermanence, which can, but doesn't always, lead to insight into impermanence, which is something that's not always noted in the progress in various modern discussions of the progress of insight maps but it is an inside experience of impermanence and this can happen uh, uh insights into impermanence can happen in uh in, in this stage six seven uh eight level of the uh 10 stages of tmi and uh so there there is a correspondence here but there's a difference that somebody practicing tmi might also uh, rather than experiencing insight into impermanence, might be insight into um, interconnectedness, might be insight into emptiness, um, uh, might be some degree of insight into suffering. Um, the, the development of samatha 
develops mental skills and predisposes a person to um, to recognizing insight experiences that occur, and these these actually occur fairly common. It predisposes to much stronger insight experiences during meditation, and it makes it more likely that the that the meditator meditator is going to recognize this uh, as as something that is outside of their normal experience and requires uh, further investigation, which will lead to uh, uh, essentially becoming an insight. Now, when somebody has a taste of insight, um, to the degree that it um, touches upon insight into no self uh, or emptiness of self, um, which is what insight into impermanence does as well, then it's likely to trigger um, the uh, reaction that is described as the dukkha jnanas and the, and the progress of insight maps. Uh, knowledge of misery, or knowledge of terror, knowledge of misery, knowledge of disgust, and then uh, uh, reobservation and so forth. Um, the difference is that in a person practicing samatha, um, that uh, they would probably already be less attached to the notion of self than somebody doing a dry insight practice. They would have more. Uh, they would have more. How to put it? Um, more skills uh, to draw upon, and they are less likely to experience the uh, uh, to experience those particular knowledges in with the kind of intensity that is described in the progress of insight maps. Basically what the dukkhanyanas in that particular map are saying is that when you start to have insight into things that completely undermine the fundamental assumptions by which you've lived your life up to that moment, it is going to be uncomfortable. To the degree to which it's uncomfortable, well, a lot of different factors enter into it. Um, how much purification you've done uh, prior to that. And of course, in the dry insight practice, there is none. Whether or not you have uh, uh, developed some degree of, uh, of joy, pleasure uh, in your meditation. In the, uh, in the practices that uh, are based on, uh, on the progress of insight maps, uh, that's actually actively discouraged they're referred to as the defilements of insight uh, when they arise. And so all of this means, uh, what, what all of this means is the degree of discomfort resulting from insight is going to be greater. But if you're following what I'm saying, um, if somebody is developing sanata, they get to stage six, seven, eight, they begin to have insight experiences and insight begins to develop that, that these insights because of the way they undermine uh, our existing worldview, they produce discomfort. It's just a question of the degree of discomfort and the description as knowledge of terror and misery and disgust is sort of the uh, extreme version of that. So, so that's the way that maps. 
Uh, and of course, the what what follows the knowledge of equanimity towards formations, and what follows uh, the degree of uh, development of samatha corresponding to to stage nine. Uh, insight and awakening usually follow very quickly if if there haven't already been insights in uh, stages seven and eight then stage nine and, and ten uh, uh, the insights will come and of course a person at these stages is much much better prepared to deal with those insights uh, they're already they essentially have those insights while already being uh, uh, in a certain degree of equanimity towards formation. So um, the next step beyond that, of course, uh, is uh, uh, essentially the, what's referred to as the change of lineage and the path and fruition moment that would give rise to awakening. And the two maps are the same in terms of that. So I hope that that, that sort of correlation between the two is helpful. One is describing the events that occur in the process of developing insight that culminates in awakening. But that particular description is based on a, a single uh, and relatively unusual until recent type of practice that's referred to as dry insight. It's drawn from the Fasudhi Magga by Buddha Gosha, who was not a meditator, but a compiler rather. And uh, the description of the progress of insight is only a small part of the Vasudhi Magga. And the rest of it is really talking about uh, the kinds of uh, meditation practices that do lead to, uh, to uh, Samatha and that lead to other uh, mental characteristics that uh, would moderate to certain degrees the, the, the map that's associated with the dry insight practice. Um, what else can I say about it? Um, okay, so it's a map. The progress of insight is exactly what it says. It's a map of the progress of insight, but the form that each of those knowledges take uh, is going to vary depending on the practices that a person is doing to achieve insight and awakening. Now, they, um, the other map in TMI of the 10 stages um, can be applied by, to, by somebody who is practicing dry insight, but they're going to be, they're usually going to be discouraged from doing that by the dry insight teachers. And their instruction will be to ignore the things that arise and instead to uh, just uh, keep noting or, or keep noticing. Um, would it be useful or a hindrance to know about both of these? I think it's very useful if you have an understanding of both of them and you understand the relationship of them to each other, then it's very helpful because when insight begins to arise, um, you can uh, you, you do have a map to take reference to, as long as you understand that, that you won't necessarily go through those particular stages uh, exactly the way they're described 
in uh, the Basuti Maga and Mahasi's Progress of Insight. So I think I've answered that question fairly thoroughly. Uh, actually, uh, could I ask one clarification? You said at the start that um, stage six experiences, there are experiences there that you would equate somewhat to the knowledge of arising and passing away. Are you referring to like the acquired appearance or some other? Do you have something specific in mind? Well, I'm what I'm referring to specifically is the level, the level of uh, stability of attention and the degree of uh, introspective, or, or the, yeah, the degree of introspective awareness that a person has developed um, to experience the arising and passing away is what corresponds to stage six. But the corollary of that is that a person at stage six will observe uh, arising and passing away in various forms. There, uh, in the process of overcoming uh, subtle distractions, they will quickly, they, their mind is fast and sharp, and they, they will uh, have awareness of the arising and passing away of the different things in, in uh, peripheral awareness that are vying for attention and uh, sometimes become subtle distractions, but which the practitioner at stage six is, is trying to uh, stabilize their attention enough that, that they don't succeed in causing alternating attention. So this, uh, this is the kind of acuity that's associated with arising and passing away. The uh, acquired appearance is another example. You're clearly seeing the arising and passing away of a series of sensation and you're seeing it uh, non-conceptually. Um, generally, the overall experience by stage six. If you, if you read the descriptions of the arising and passing away, you'll see the similarity. There is, there is that uh, uh, mental acuity. There is that uh, sharpness and quickness of attention. And there is the brightness and clarity of uh, awareness. And those are, those are the similarities. Does, does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely. More than answers it. Thank you. Great. <clears throat> Another question here from Malte Malm, and I apologize to anybody whose name I mispronounce. <clears throat> I know you have familiar, familiarity with some of Jeffrey Martin's work. As someone who's taken his course, I'm interested in what you have to say on location optimizing tailoring. This is something that Jeffrey emphasizes a great deal, that further not always equals better when going further on the continuum deeper into realization. For example, Jeffrey advises not to go much further than location two if you're running a business as location three and four wouldn't work that well in that role. While I've gotten the impression that you tend to encourage deepening as exclu uh, an exclusively positive thing, or at least I haven't heard you talk about stopping at a certain point. Um, I'd love to hear you take on negative aspects or deepening in realization, particularly in regards to 
work, self-employed business owner, and family life as I'm pondering what goals to set for myself and my practice. I totally dig both TMI and Finder's Course perspective, but I'm kind of wondering how to reconcile, integrate the two. In my opinion, different views. Well, great. The final statement that Malte has made here, <laughs> this, this is the crux of it, that they are different perspectives. And there was initially uh, an attempt by almost everybody who looked at Jeffrey's four locations and the traditional four paths to try to map these onto each other. And the more people, uh, by the way, Jeffrey's, Jeffrey's a friend of mine, and uh, he's not a Buddhist, and he doesn't, uh, he, he's not necessarily claiming that they map onto each other. He just has remarked, as has everyone else that's looked at what he has, what he had, the information he's made available, that, wow, that, that there is kind of a similarity there. I wonder if they're really the same thing. But the more of uh, the more serious practitioners who do the finders course, uh, the more it becomes clear that those locations do not map uh, in any direct way. Uh, onto the four paths, although there is some overlap. And Jeffrey's map has much more to do with states and experiences, while um, the, the four paths have to do with uh, permanent transformations that occur uh, as, the, as, um, as a result of cognitive shifts taking place at a very deep intuitive level. And so, yes, there are, there are experience and states induced by the practices that have been put together in the form of the finders course. And there are likewise similarities in the experiences and states reported by the original uh, uh, cohort, uh, cohort of uh, so-called awakened beings that Jeffrey based his map on. Uh, similarities of experiences and states is not the same thing as similarities of cognitive uh, uh, shift and permanent transformation. So I think this cuts to uh, the first part of the question. Now, I really owe it to everyone who's done the finders course and, and talks to me about it. And I owe it to Jeffrey and I owe it to myself to become much more familiar than I have with the uh, additional information that he's providing in, in the finders course and subsequent to it. And so I have to confess that the, the particular question here, Jeffrey advises not to go much further than location two if you're running a business. I had never heard that before. And uh, I find that very interesting. And I think it points to, it points very much to the kinds of differences that uh, uh, I just discussed earlier between the four locations and the four paths. Um, without spending a lot of time going into a lot of detail, especially the kind of detail that I don't think would be appropriate uh, 
in a forum like this, uh, I'd like to put it this way. Um, the Buddha himself uh, was called upon by powerful people, uh, many of them kings, for advice. Um, somebody who had whose advice had carried that much clout, uh, do you think that realistically that they would be not capable of operating a business? Uh, if you look at the size of the Sangha that the Buddha managed over those many, many years, and the relationships with other teachers, the relationships with uh, the people that supported his sanghas, who uh, created places for them to, to spend their winter rains, meditations, and all of those sorts of things. I mean, this is all, uh, this all reflects the abilities of a very, very confident person who's very capable of working with other people very skillfully, and uh, uh, I, I think running a large uh, sangha of mendicants and having uh, uh, locations and sponsors in uh, numerous cities and providing advice to uh, uh, to rulers and powerful people of different kinds, I think that answers the question that there's absolutely no reason why somebody who was a third or fourth path wouldn't be able to um, uh, to function quite effectively. Now, their interests and their motivations might change very dramatically. Um, they might not be nearly as interested in making money as in uh, doing things that are beneficial in the world. And uh, that might create all kinds of shifts in the way they manage their business or the kind of business that they chose to do um, and so on and so forth. So it would definitely affect it. But um, you know, uh, what comes to mind just at the moment uh, is um, Daniel Ingram and he likes to um, uh, attack the uh, uh, model of, uh, of the arhat or the awakened being that says that that uh, they're incapable you know what is he called the emotionally crippled buddha and uh, buddhas and arhats and anagamis are anything but cripples uh, emotionally intellectually or otherwise now some of the states that uh jeffrey talks about um and yeah I, i'd really Actually, I'd really like to sit down with Jeffrey and say, so what is it about these, uh, the, the mental states and the experiences people have in locations three and four that, that would make you advise people uh, not to, to go further than that? And until I have that constant conversation with Jeffrey, uh, I'm somewhat limited in my ability to answer that question. But I can say without, without a doubt that Although there will be a very profound uh, shift in the motivations and the way that somebody at third or fourth path conducted their life as a layperson in business and in and, and, and a family, uh, it would not be that they were in incapacitated or incapable or couldn't do it ineffectively or couldn't do it effectively.
Shuladasa, can I uh, make an observation? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, one of the things that I've that I've noticed in myself and in other people who've had sort of finer's coursey transitions is um, the the things that were motivating us before the transition no longer work to motivate us afterwards. And there's often a a lag period of perhaps months or longer where we're trying to rediscover how to be motivated. And I wonder if part of the reason that Jeffrey is, uh, has had these observations has to do with that rather than specifically with locations. Um, yes, it is. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's particularly common on uh, second path is that a person will have a period where they're, they're kind of rudderless because without, Without the uh, uh, drive that comes from craving, um, they, uh, they sort of don't know what to do, and they have difficulty making decisions. As a matter of fact, uh, people at third and fourth path, it becomes progressively more and more difficult uh, for them to make uh, decisions that don't have really clear um, uh I'm going to use this word advisedly, moral consequences associated with them. Uh, and they become more and more guided by um, an inner comp compass in the directions that they take. But yes, one of the things that people often experience for a while, uh, and it's in the category of states and experiences, it's not characteristic of second path, but something that people usually uh, have an experience of that can last for a few weeks or, or a few months is uh, a sort of sense of rudderlessness in terms of their life, their relationships, things like that. Not really quite knowing, um, you know, not, not having that uh, prior drive to go in particular directions uh, that were primarily motivated by, uh, by craving and uh, a more self-centered perspective. Um, so um, I'm explaining a little more in detail what I was referring to. There are states and experiences that happen in, the, uh, in all of the four paths that are also described as uh, occurring in Jeffrey's location. But I'm not sure that there is the result. They're all. I, I'm not. Sometimes they're the result of the same kinds of things. Um, someone like yourself who's been meditating and studying Buddhism for many, many years, for decades, you're going to do go and do Jeffrey Martin's course, and you're going to achieve some realizations that can be definitely mapped. That can can be definitely described as path attainment. Somebody who's never had that background uh, doing the finder's course might have some experiences. They might find themselves in a location where they are uh, having extended periods of being in certain mental states that are uh, very similar or perhaps the same as what happens to somebody who has actually had a path attainment, but they haven't had a path attainment. Does that make it clearer, what I'm saying? So I'm not surprised at your experience, because I, I think that your 
transition. You know, I know you, and uh, your transition involves uh, uh, path attainment as well. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think that in the uh, the later or uh, I don't know if the word is higher, but in in the later locations that Jeffrey describes, the uh, there tends to be more divergence. But there is there is a categorical categorical difference between uh, a person in those locations who has no prior experience of meditation and dharma, and people in those locations that come to the finders course with a background of uh, meditation and dharma. Thanks. Yeah, there are some things. Another example that I'll just mention is that there is associated with fourth path um, a complete shift in your relationship to your emotions. And that's often preceded by a period where uh, there seem to be no emotions. Uh, and, then, and then what happens is you develop a very, uh, a much more healthy relationship to your emotions after that. Um, I know that uh, in, in the uh, location four, it's often described as being a location in which uh, emotions have disappeared and people uh, are uh, described as finding that difficult to deal with. Other people are saying, I'm not sure if I want to go to location four. I'm not sure if I would still feel like a human being. I know if they went to fourth path, they wouldn't lose their emotions. As a matter of fact, they would gain uh, uh, a level of their humanity and their emotions that was much deeper and richer and they would no longer be under, under the control of their emotions. But they wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't be data. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have become data-like as in Star Trek, next generation data. So here's another question. I listened to your path through awakening in daily life and found it really helpful. Sometimes I'm wondering how to handle stress at work or stress in general. If I'm, for example, at a job where it's kind of stressful, but I also know I can learn a lot and become skilled to help other people in need in the future. Um, it, either I misread that or it's not a syntactically correct sentence, but I think I know what it means. I'm at a job where it's kind of stressful, but I also know I can learn a lot and become skilled to help other people. Yeah, a little guidance on how to draw the line between investing too much at work and seeing it all as an opportunity to watch craving and aversion against some situations in life would be really appreciated. Well, um, F has very clearly identified exactly what the goal is. Uh, it, it is to um, learn not to uh, not to invest too much emotionally, not to become too attached to uh, to your your views, uh, not to become attached to specific too attached to specific goals, etc. 
uh, and uh, therefore generate a lot of stress for yourself, a lot of dukkha for yourself that comes from attachment. Um, and instead, being able to watch your reaction uh, to, um, to the way things evolve in the workplace, to the decisions that are made that you don't agree with, to the um, goals and intentions of other people that you don't agree with, is, is you, you do. You want to watch those and learn, and uh, but you want to develop equanimity, but that requires a certain amount of equanimity. Um, the only way that you can do that is to gain some objective distance between yourself and your emotions, between yourself and your attachments, uh, between yourself and the aversion desire that arises uh, in those situations. Um, recognizing them for what they are when they arrive and giving them some attention and continuing to be aware of them when dealing with the situation requires that your attention be uh, uh, involved elsewhere. That is the way to make the, to make the changes. Um, and as I said earlier uh, and in about uh, mindfulness in daily life, reflection plays a huge role in this. Uh, so you find that you've become too emotionally invested. You find that you've experienced uh, um, uh, aversion and, and other negative states. If you, if you can, and, and, and you might not have had any mindfulness during the events that that was happening, but then afterwards, you recognize that you're, you're uh, upset for hours afterwards, that uh, you were in a good mood before and it's kind of spoiled your day, that, uh, that your uh, emotional reactions are interfering with your ability to concentrate on other tasks that you need to do. Apply your mindfulness to that. It's, and and hold that in attention and acknowledge that consciously. That's going to communicate to those un unconscious subminds that uh, were driving your behavior uh, that caused you to become uh, too identified with your emotions, uh, to become too attached, and, and to re react the way that you did. In your reflection, you can relive the experience and you can look at the consequences and it just becomes really obvious that, wow, that's exactly the kind of thing that I'd like not to do in the future. That's exactly the kind of way I'd like not to be in the future. And that's going to leave an imprint and that's going to help you the next time. And uh, um, if I refer you to the magic of mindfulness interlude, in uh, uh, the mind illuminated, I basically describe that process in detail. And I hope you, that you find that helpful. Um, once again, I'll just say as I did before, you will see so many similarities 
between developing these kinds of skills in your daily life and the process that you went to went through in developing uh, that same set of skills in sitting meditation. It's just the sitting meditation is a very refined and isolated environment in which you're doing it. The, uh, out there in the world, it's much tougher, but uh, that's what you're doing is you're going to go through the same stages and you're going through the process is similar. And um, yeah. But keep in mind, reflection, reflection is something that is extremely valuable in the daily life. Take some time each day to reflect on your lack of mindfulness, your uh, emotional overinvestment, uh, your uh, identification with your ideas and your views and your beliefs, and your reactions in terms of craving. Any comments, welcome. Okay. Um, Did like you that. see, uh, sorry, Walter's question in the, in oh. the chat? Oh, in the chat. Oh, I see. I, I wasn't looking at my chat. Okay, Walter's question. I'm working around stage five and I'm uncertain about the comments regarding the characteristics of subtle dullness. Specifically, the comments about keeping the breath sensations clear and vivid. The sensation of the breath tends to become very smooth and uniform when I've arrived at this level of concentration. And I was wondering if the level of concentration, and I was wondering if the smoothness is any way irreconcilable with the concept of clarity, since subtle dullness is described in so, as so insidious. Um, yes, I would be... Uh, I would be very suspicious of that smoothness because um, you've observed the breath. It is a sequence of very distinctly different sensations arising and passing away. Now, um, yes, there is a smoothness to it, uh, which is really more um, any process that you can think of that uh, it consists of a series of uh, events that are quite distinct from each other, but yet unfold repeatedly in the same way, has a certain smoothness to it. But if you're the smoothness you're referring to is a blurring together of these distinct sensations, uh, then I would be very suspicious of it, but rather that it is exactly the kind of subtle dullness that you're trying to overcome. Uh, there should be, uh, the subjective experience should be that there's a certain brightness and clarity, which you can choose to pursue, or you can choose to just let be there and you know that it's there. Um, but that, that is what is distinctive of, um, of increasing the power of, of your attention and awareness is uh, 
it's more it's more vivid it's more clear um it's more yeah like i say it's the reason i use the word brightness is it's it's as though the wattage had been turned up on the light that you were examining the phenomenon with and it has a, a similar counterpart in the quality of your awareness i see something from Malte as well here. Uh, so I found it interesting that you talked about locations as a state kind of phenomenon. Also, Jeffrey speaks of sublocations, and that the four locations each contain a lot, infinite amounts of sublocations or substates. Yes. Early uh, either way, thank you for your input. Okay, well, um, you're welcome, Malte. Uh, yes. And uh, um, it would be up to Jeffrey. I'd be quite open to having a discussion with Jeffrey that was made available to the people, all the people who had done the finders course. Um, so I'm open to it. Uh, the question of whether or not Jeffrey would be. Uh, I suspect he would be, but um, until somebody approaches him and, and goes to the trouble of setting it up, we won't know. I'd love to do that, so. All right, I'm gonna go back to the questions here. I'd like to ask a question that didn't make it into the last Reddit Q&A. It's often said that awakening is a recognition or understanding, not a state that's subject to passing away. Here, here, that's absolutely true. Even today though, some prominent people and researchers continue to view it as something more state-like, something that one could fall out of, and that could, in principle, be measured in, say, neurological terms. Now, the one doesn't preclude the other. Um, what is your view on this apparent dichotomy? Okay, there are, as I said earlier, uh, states, many of which are temporary, some of which are characteristic in an ongoing way, but they are states that are associated with the various path attainments. But the path attainments themselves are essentially cognitive. Um, that, that is their very essence. They are a, a kind of knowing and understanding that has penetrated the uh, uh, consensual reality-based views that uh, we normally hold. And the uh, analogy that I use is from The Wizard of Oz, when Toto pulls back the curtain and Dorothy sees uh, the, wither, the wizard is really a pot-bellied man with a bunch of fancy gadgets to make loud voices and big noises and stuff. There's no way she can ever forget that, right? And so this is, this is the essence of awakening, is a kind of knowledge that can't be lost. Well, it can be, it can be temporarily forgotten, but it can't stay forgotten very long. Um, to resort to the mind system model, there are parts of the mind that can have gained that knowledge and understanding, 
but a person can find themselves in a situation where the parts of their mind that are involved with that, that are triggered to be present and that are involved in dealing with that situation do not yet have, uh, have not yet achieved that uh, level of understanding, that cognitive shift. So that's why it can appear to be something that somebody would fall out of, but um, it's not. It's, it's, it's knowledge, and I'm sure if I thought about it a bit, I could come up with other kinds of, well, yeah, first thing that comes to mind is, you know the world is uh, round, but you find yourself looking at maps, planning trips, standing outside, watching the sunrise and moon, moon set, and you're thinking of it in terms of a flat world, you know? So even though at one level you know the world is round, um, there are lots of situations where you forget that. Uh, if you were an airline pilot and saw the curvature of the Earth on a daily basis, or an astronaut who spent weeks or months in uh, outer space looking at Earth, believe me, you're not going to ever forget it. And that's kind of that's the kind of deepening of the knowledge that takes place that's associated with uh, awakening. So. Um, People who speak of awakening and of past attainments in terms of experiences and states, I feel like are totally misunderstanding. There, uh, yes, there are particular states uh, that are associated with the past, some temporary and some more persistent, um, but they're just states and they're not the essence of the past. And somebody can fall away from that completely and never experience those states again. The classic example would be what somebody describes as a peak experience. They have an experience of oneness of everything, of dissolution of the sense of separateness. Uh, it's profound. It lasts for hours. Uh, it perhaps changes to some degree the way they think about things, but there's no way that that state recurs. Of course, they often end up pursuing a spiritual path because they would like to get that, back to that place on a permanent basis. Well, they can if they achieve the insight knowledge and that knowledge penetrates to the deep intuitive level so that it changes the way they perceive the world, then rather than having been a peak experience that was wonderful but fell away, uh, then they have something that is much more ongoing and that state may be more or less intense at different times, but it never disappears again because it is, it is cognitive, uh, but it's not, it's, I, I have to really stress this. It doesn't have to be conscious at all because the important cognitive shift has happened within the unconscious submind and, and is a shift in the fundamental assumptions that the worldview that's generated and the moods and the mind states and everything else are generated from by those unconscious subminds. So no matter how well you understand something intellectually and know it intellectually, it doesn't change. Uh, it doesn't make any kind of permanent change until it penetrates to that deep intuitive level that involves a cognitive shift in the unconscious subminds uh, uh, that are foundational to what you experience consciously. This part about could, in principle, be measured in neurological terms. 
Um, absolutely, you can measure states in neurological terms, and um, you can measure the changes that take place in the brain that as a result of knowledge that is acquired at this deep intuitive level. Um, when somebody achieves insight, their brain will rewire itself. You know, when I talk about sub-minds, uh, uh, undergoing a fundamental cognitive shift, uh, in neurological terms, that means that there are neural circuits that are uh, undergoing a kind of rewiring, restructuring uh, in their function. Um, that is because I believe that for every mental phenomenon, we will eventually discover the neurological correlate for it. And so I have no doubt there is a neurological correlate for uh, both the uh, for both the changes that are the result of the cognitive shift that is involved in insight and awakening. And there are also, we'll find the neurological correlates for all of those more temporary states that develop but are not sustained because they don't lead to any sort of permanent restructuring of, of the brain. I, but lest I be mistaken as a a reductionistic materialist? I'm not. I believe that there is a, that the brain is the mirror of the mind, but neither the brain is matter nor the mind is something uh, separate uh, exists. I believe that that uh, that there is a stuff that is neither matter nor mind, and that uh, it looks different depending on whether you're looking at it from the inside or the outside. But when you but no matter whether you're looking at it from the inside or the outside, you're going to find correlations because it's the same stuff that is uh, evolving and undergoing those changes. So that's why I say that eventually uh, neuroscience will be able to identify, at least in theory, uh, a neurological correlate for every mental event of any kind. Not because the mind is something the brain does, but because mind and brain are just, they're two different ways of looking at the same stuff. And if that stuff has changed, you'll be able to see the change from both perspectives. Let me go back and see if anybody's put anything in there. We've got uh, one more question, I think, from MX. Yeah, I see that. I just wanted okay. to see if there's anything in the chat line, chat box that I should pay attention to. Um, I think I think I'll go back and answer the last question here. I think Walter has a question to everyone, and I think everyone is the right person to answer it. Okay, MX. I'm having trouble applying mindfulness to my health conditions off the cushion. Formal practice helps greatly, but as soon as I need to return to a complex task at work, the dread and pain get overwhelming and motivation 
tanks, and I'm not sure where to anchor my focus. Okay, so MX, I believe what you're saying is that when you're sitting on the cushion, you have health conditions that probably uh, produce both pain and perhaps unlimited functional ability. Um, we'll assume that pain is one of the more difficult aspects of it. So you seem to be saying in formal practice, you can stop um, identifying with the pain. You can stop uh, generating the uh, so-called second arrow of suffering in response to the pain, or at least greatly attenuate the degree to which you do it. But then when you go go back to work, then you find yourself uh, once again identifying with the pain and, um, uh, and, and, and struggling uh, with a lot of dukkha as a result of it. Your motivation tanks. I'm not sure you might be saying that uh, what good is this if I can do, hand, do this when I'm sitting, but I can't do it in my daily life. I now where you start to point towards the answer yourself is, and I'm not sure where to anchor my focus. Well, if you're doing some kind of complex task at work, then that's the place to anchor your focus to the degree that you can and allow the health conditions to be there in awareness, uh, but not, uh, I, not identify with them. Identification with them happens when they start to receive attention. And so the ability to anchor your focus is really uh, going to be in a very important part of this. Um, now, what that may entail is that you're going, when you find yourself um, being overwhelmed by your health condition in the course of trying to work, um, if your work is such that it allows you to, is to take a few moments to refocus your attention Use the breath at your nose, if that's what you use in sitting meditation, and see if you can't at least get a bit closer to uh, that place that you are in meditation, where you're in an objective perspective. You're not identifying with it, but you're just looking at, at the uh, pain or whatever it is. Uh, you describe it as dread and pain, so let's call it pain. You're looking at the pain in an objectively way for a little while, and then see if you can go uh, go back to your work while the pain remains more in the background with more of that um, uh, sort of objective quality and less identification with it. Um, Attention can do two things with pain. Attention can create strong identification. And the other thing that attention can do is create objectivity. And 
To the degree that you can use your attention to create objectivity, you can eventually get to the point where you can allow the pain to be present in awareness and there's much less identification with it and there's much less of the mental suffering generated in response to it. Now this, this is exactly the way it's described in stage four in, in uh, dealing with pain. So, to, so what I'm suggesting is that to the degree that you can, you apply the same methodology, even though you're at work. And this does presuppose that your ability to, you have the ability to uh, withdraw somewhat from, from your work enough to refocus your attention on the pain and to achieve some degree of objectivity in your relationship to the pain. Uh, until the point where you're able to let it slip back into awareness while you refocus on the task at hand. And please don't get discouraged if you find that difficult to do um, uh, initially, because remember, it's very difficult to do sitting on the cushion. Most people they spend their first few hours of trying to deal with pain, um, being able to do it for gradually slightly longer periods of time before they finally give up and they have to move and, or, or do something else to relieve the pain. So in, in your daily life situation, you're going to go through the same gradual process. You're gonna have the feeling that all oh, this works for a few minutes, but it doesn't work for, but it's not a permanent solution. Well, no, but you'll get better at it as time goes by. And so uh, trust in the process and uh, just apply the method. Walter has a last minute question. Uh, Thomas is mostly in stages four and five. Uh, inclining to the mind to breath sensations at the nose shows bubbly vibrational sensations even off cushion. While sitting, the breath is shallow to the point that only these sensations show up. Uh, temperature and movement of the air type sensations are found in parallel if I intend to find them. Um, Thomas, it actually sounds like uh, you're 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 having what is usually a stage six kind of experience, uh, not the typical uh, acquired uh, sensation of the breath, but a variation on that, uh, where when you talk about the uh, um, bubbly vibrational sensations, um, sounds a bit like if you look at the description in stage seven of um, uh, close following, that uh, uh, that your moments of attention will eventually uh, reach a, a level of uh, non-conceptual uh, structuralization, but they become unrecognizable. And 
Now I'm speculating on very little information right here, but what it sounds to what it sounds like to me initially is, oh, okay, what's happening to him is uh, that he's uh, he's following the breath and he's slipping into that state where water coming up are uh, uh, these moments of, of consciousness in which very little winding has taken place and they are essentially uh, not recognizable in the usual sense. So you're saying, you know, uh, it, um, yeah, the shallowness of your breath is something, uh, is something that's very characteristic of that as well. You then say temperature and movement of the air type sensation are found in parallel if I intend to find them. Yeah, that is even more confirmative, meaning that if you look for them, you can find that those uh, very primitive uh, sensations uh, can be conceptualized uh, to the point of uh, being experienced as, as the uh, sense percepts of temperature and movement. And probably if you look a little closer, you can get them to start becoming uh, sensations of the breath, not, not a little more close, I shouldn't say a little more closely, I'd say because it's, it's really the opposite of that. If you look at them a little more um, um, from a little greater distance, uh, then you'll find the conceptualization into uh, uh, in-breath and out-breath will probably return. Um, is it okay if I focus on these first? Um, I would say yes, but then don't get caught up in doing that. Uh, remember what you're trying to do. If you're mostly in stages four and five, then the main thing that you're concerned about is uh, gross distraction and gross and subtle dullness. So keep your mind on track. Or key, you know, keep your behavior and meditation on track. You can you can focus on these things. You can explore them, but never forget that the reason you're sitting there is to get to the point where you no longer have gross distractions arriving, arising, and where you have overcome gross gross dullness or strong dullness, and you are um, um, working on eliminating. Uh, subtle dullness and instead uh, achieving a higher degree of, uh, of sustained uh, mindfulness. Um, when you're having the, my, if we were doing a face-to-face -face interview, one of my questions would be that when you're having these experiences, what's happening to your peripheral awareness? Because if your peripheral awareness has collapsed, then, uh, then there actually is some subtle dullness there and uh, all of your mental energy is going into your attention and you have enough mental energy that you're managing to come up with these bubbly vibrational sensations uh, or the sense percepts of temperature and movement. And um, if that's the case, then, then um, you don't want to keep focusing on this. What you want to do is to, uh, whether these, whether these altered sensations arise or not, you want to make sure that while keeping your attention focused on them rather than becoming distracted, 
that you make sure that you have strong introspective awareness. And I would I would go for a strong metacognitive introspective awareness. Um, I know you're listening, so maybe you can respond just to tell me whether this is helpful. Well, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> something went down the wrong pipe over that there. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> okay, Thomas has answered. I see that. Okay, so um, uh, yeah, I think I think what I said was very appropriate and on target then, and hopefully you'll be able to use it uh, to. Uh, so you you can just let these things happen, but stay on track with with what you're trying to accomplish in these stages. So you're getting a taste of something that most people don't experience till later on, and that's fine. But don't don't let it uh, don't let it take you away from the task at hand. Okay. So, and thank you very much for bringing that up, Thomas. Probably beneficial to other people as well. So. I think we've uh, exhausted the questions. I think so. I enjoyed this session and look forward to the next one. I, I thank everyone who submitted questions and I thank those of you who came to listen in on this discussion. And I most especially thank all of you for your Patreon contributions. Uh, and uh, thank you very, very much. Um, and I know it's going to make a tremendous difference to my work in the future. So I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Chuladasa. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too.